Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. The title of the message is Supernatural Power and Spiritual Danger. Supernatural Power and Spiritual Danger. I'll just say at the outset of the message, if you're new today, this is a bit of a different kind of message. We're in a series on the book of Acts, and we come to Acts chapter 5. Today's message is a startling message. If this text is correctly understood, it will be unsettling for a number of people. Because this text is a warning. We live in a day where God is not taken seriously. You can tell when God is not taken seriously because sin is not taken seriously. And when you don't take sin seriously, then you're not taking God seriously. And this passage reminds us of who God is and the reverence that he deserves especially as it relates to our personal relationship with him. So let's jump in. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias. Now, when you see that word at the start of a chapter, then you know it's taking you back. It's connecting you to what you've just read in the previous chapter. And that's the case with Acts chapter 5. It's connected to what we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So what you have is you have a contrast between what happens at the end of Acts 4 and what happens at the start of Acts chapter 5. On the one end, you have Joseph, a Levite, which means he's one of, from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the priestly tribe. He doesn't live in national Israel. He lives on the island of Cyprus. He's come to Jerusalem, and as he's been there in Jerusalem, no doubt got relationships there and relatives there. And as he's there, he is swept up in what is happening since the day of Pentecost. He is now part of the church. And as he watches what is happening in the church, he sees the needs of people. His heart is touched. He realizes he has a field back in Cyprus that he is not using, that he can do without. He sells the field. He takes the money, gives it to the apostles. And the result is that the church is incredibly blessed. And in fact, even today, we're blessed by his story. I mean, he's instantly well-known. He didn't do it for the notoriety, but it was a big deal. Here's a guy selling a field, giving it to the church, and now all of a sudden, people know him, and not only know him, but the apostles are so wowed and awed by what he's done that they give him a nickname. They call him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. And on the heels of that, we meet a husband and wife. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira, and they too sold a piece of property. It's interesting, their names, Ananias 
means Yahweh is gracious, and Sapphira is a first century name that is used almost exclusively among the Jewish nobility. So here's what we know. We know that she is from a wealthy family. She marries into a wealthy family. We know that she has wealth because her interaction in this story, it's not gonna be. In that day, typically, the husband would be the one who would make the financial decisions. But here, you have her very much apart, which tells us that probably the field they're selling was part of her dowry, what her family gave to her husband as they got married. So she has this dowry, this field, and she is involved in the decision to sell the field. All that to say, she's not an innocent bystander. So as you watch this, she and Ananias are doing what they do together. Probably as well, and I mean, there's just some things implied in the passage. Nobody knows what the, the price was that they got for the field which tells us it's probably not a field in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Otherwise, people could say when they sold the field, they could say, well, that's not what you got because I knew so-and-so who said you, he paid such and such for the field. So probably very much like Joseph or Barnabas, it's a field that is in another geographic location, a distance away. And so they have this field and they're going to sell it. The inference as well. There are many things implied in the passage. This is why don't ever read the Bible too quickly because you read it too quickly, then you don't think about it. You don't understand it. You don't get as much out of it. But if you stop and think, well, now why would they do that? What's happening here? What's happening is they saw Barnabas get this recognition. All of a sudden, the 12 apostles know his name. He's a foreigner, but they know him. He's given this gift and everybody's like, oh, that's amazing. Even today we say, wow, that's really amazing. Barnabas through the ages is celebrated and they're watching this go down and they're thinking we'd like to be honored too. We'd like to be known by the apostles too. We like people to think that we're as spiritual as Barnabas because we really are. People just don't know it. So we're going to do what Barnabas did. All of which is to say it's a spiritually dangerous thing when people want others to know about and to applaud their acts of service and generosity. We don't serve because of what others will think if we do or don't, and we don't give because of what others will think or not think if we don't. And we're not trying to, in a church, create some kind of position for ourselves or compete with people in our giving or in our service. But Ananias and Sapphira were. Look at it. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sell the property and he doesn't give all of it to the church, which is not a problem. He doesn't have to give all of it to the church. The problem is they've cooked up a scheme. They've said, we want everybody to think we're like Barnabas. We just don't want to do what Barnabas did. So it would be like, 
you having a piece of property, it's worth $100,000, you sell it, and you want everybody to think you're really, you're really, you know, just fully in and on. And, and so you come and, and you say, listen, I'm, I'm giving you all the proceeds to a field we just sold to meet needs in the church. Only instead of giving 100,000, you give 70,000 and you keep 30,000 for yourself. You could have kept the 30,000 for yourself and said, we sold a piece of property and we wanted to give a portion of the proceeds to the church. That'd been great, but that's not what they did. Because what they were doing was they were trying to do it to create an impression that was different than the reality actually was. In this case, it's Ananias and Sapphira goes along with him, which there's a lesson in there, ladies. If your husband is not going to serve the Lord and he's wanting you to do things that are dishonoring to the Lord, that it's in your best interest not to go along with him. The Bible doesn't say wives submit to your husbands and everything. It says submit as unto the Lord. So if your husband is going the wrong way, don't go with him because love has its limits. Let me just say this, you're dating somebody, you're seeing somebody, and they're not honoring the Lord or they're wanting you to do things that dishonor the Lord. They're wanting you to sleep with them outside of marriage. Then the right thing to do is to say, I'm honoring the Lord. I'm not following you and you will go there by yourself. I'm not going to be a part of that. So here is Ananias and Sapphira. They cook this up. They come to Peter. They give him the money. But Peter said, you say, how does Peter know? The Holy Spirit told him. You know, there's times the Holy Spirit lets you know what you couldn't know on your own. This is the value of walking with the Lord, that when you're walking with the Lord, the Lord is gonna drop things in your heart. He's gonna tell you things you could not have known any other way. And in this case, he is told, the Lord has told Peter exactly what has gone on. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. So in contrast to Barnabas' spirit-filled giving, you have Ananias and Sapphira's Satan-filled giving. The word filled there, Satan's filled your heart, uh, it's the Greek word plerau. We could translate it, Satan has controlled your heart. Satan has dominated your heart. Satan has driven your heart. Satan has directed your heart. You say, are they Christians? We don't know. It seems within the context of it that they are. And yet here you have Christians who have given the devil a foothold in their heart and it has been disastrous for them. Listen, it's very, very important, and I think as a side note, is that we by our actions as followers of Christ, we would understand, it would not surprise us if they were an unbeliever that Satan has filled their heart. The shock is that as a believer, can that happen? And the answer is yes. That 
As followers of Jesus, if we're not careful, if we don't guard our heart, this is why the writer of Proverbs says, above all else, I mean, put this at the top of your list, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. What happens in the heart, what happens in here will come out out here. You gotta guard your heart. You can open your heart to the enemy. You can give the devil a foothold. You can give him a base of operations. You can, you can open your heart in such a way that over time, his influence grows. I think as a pastor, there are three areas through the years where I would say people, three areas that I think trip people up maybe more than any other, or three areas where specifically you really see the enemy get a foothold in somebody's life. The first one is the whole area of resentment and bitterness. In Ephesians chapter four, and I want to just talk about this because it's very, very critical that as followers of Christ, we're guarding our heart. Look at this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And watch this. And do not give the devil a foothold. When it talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger, it's saying don't nurse a grudge, don't nurse a hurt, don't nurse a resentment, don't sit there and talk about it all the time, don't let it fester. If your anger was wrong, repent quickly. And if you're angry at someone, forgive them quickly. Because anger left unchecked leads to bitterness. And it gives the devil a foothold in a person's life. This is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Go to James chapter three and verse 14. James says this, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Do you realize there's a demonic wisdom? I mean, you talk to people, and I'm not in any way diminishing the hurt or the experience that you had there are experiences that people have in life that are absolutely devastating. But we have to be careful how we respond to those things because what can happen is, I talk to bitter people all the time who have a great reason for it. Well, the reason why I'm bitter is because of this, 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 and this. Do you realize that's demonic wisdom? Like somehow, you're justified to hang on to the hurt, to hang on to the bitterness, to hang on to the resentment, and the enemy loves it. It's demonic, and it not only is demonic reasoning, which Satan supplies, but it gives the enemy a foothold in your heart. Forever there is jealousy and selfish ambition. I want you to think about Ananias and Sapphira. They're jealous of Barnabas, and they want what Barnabas has. They want to be known by the apostles. They want to be, they want to be celebrated in the church. They want to be known as one of the important people. And James says, wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. 
I think there's a second way that people can give the devil a foothold in their life. And that's through what I would call repeated sexual sin. By that, it could be engaging in sex outside of marriage. So you're not married, but you're having sex, maybe with one person, maybe with many people. Pornography, prostitution, strip clubs. I mean, it all kind of goes together. And sexual sin, here's what's important. It's different than other kinds of sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm reading from the message because I think it gives some real clarity. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. The way God has designed sex, there is a spiritual component, and all sex has spiritual ramifications as a result of that. As it's written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. In other words, you're not one with Jesus if you're sleeping around. You know, at times I have people say, well, I'm good with Jesus. Well, you may think that, but it's not true. Just because you think it doesn't make it so. And Paul is saying that when people engage in sexual relationships, apart from marriage, it damages their walk with God. We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. You say, well, we're, we're still one because we're having sex. No, you're not. Not in the way that God intended and not in the way that spiritually unites you and not in the way where the two become one. You're physically connected, but in any relationship, there's more than the physical connection. The most important part is the spiritual connection. This is why you should never marry somebody who's unsaved. Because spiritual connection is virtually impossible. And that is the thing that especially over time becomes more and more valuable in a marriage and in a relationship. And over time, for those who don't have that, becomes one of the more heartbreaking aspects of the relationship. They love the person, but they cannot share the thing that matters most to them, which is their walk with God. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. And here's what happens when you engage in sexual sin. It does something to your personhood and it invites the enemy into your life. Because instead of achieving a oneness with the Lord, what you've done is you have, for whatever reason or any number of reasons, you have embraced this as a repeated lifestyle which has allowed the enemy to come into your life. It's a very spiritually dangerous thing, and it makes walking with the Lord 
Very, very difficult, if not impossible. There's a third area, just briefly, and we'll call this the area of substance abuse. In the New Testament, the word for sorcery is the word pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy from it because the pagans understood in, in Paul's day in the first century um, that you would go to the temple, you would take uh, either alcohol, you would use that, or you could use other substances that would alter your state of consciousness, the purpose of which was so that you could commune with the gods, which are demons. What you have to understand is that God has wired us and created us with a consciousness that is designed to protect us from undue spiritual influence. When a person through substance abuse lowers that or removes that, instantly demonic beings have their way with that person. This is why we have to be careful because our life, we guard our heart, we, we guard it because it determines what happens to us in life. And as you go back to Ananias and Sapphira, they're involved in this demonic wisdom. They're involved in this selfish ambition. They did not guard their heart and it's gonna cost them dearly. Acts chapter five, verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who did he lie to? He didn't lie to Peter, and he didn't lie to the church. He was lying to the Holy Spirit. See, the fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit knows every detail of my life and yours. He knows our thoughts, he knows our words, he knows our actions, he knows our intentions, he knows. And you may fool him or fool others, but you can't fool him. Acts chapter five and verse four, the story continues. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wish. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. In other words, he could have kept part of it and said, listen, I'm keeping part, but I'm giving this much to the church to help people, praise God. But he said, I sold a piece of property and I just want to give the proceeds to the church, making them think that he gave it all. Why? Because he wanted the applause of people. He wanted the recognition of the apostles. He wanted people to think he and Sapphira were something. And Peter says, how could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. In other words, he dropped dead instantly. You say, but wait a minute, I mean, this is the New Testament, this is the age of grace, God doesn't, he did those things in the Old Testament, but we are in grace, he doesn't do those things. Can I just say, if that's where you're at, that's poor theology? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, God has a deep concern for the purity of his church and the holiness of his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this just gives you an idea that that passage is not alone in, in giving us an example of 
severe discipline or judgment. Paul's writing about the communion service and he says anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. Listen, we take communion every Wednesday evening at the prayer meeting and we take it sometimes on Sunday. But we have to be careful that in the informality of passing the bread and the cup and we're in worship and we're partaking, that we don't let that breed a familiarity that causes us to have lost our awe and reverence for God and for that moment and all that moment implies. If you give no thought or worse, don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. You say like what? That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. They've died. In other words, God is, is so to be reverenced that when people don't reverence him, they risk incurring discipline that they might learn to reverence him. Would you notice so many of you that's, a, that's an amazing phrase in there. So many are listless. You say, what, what does that mean? Just don't feel good. Just, you're just restless. You just don't feel good. You're sick. Some have died, gone to an early grave. When a Christian behaves in an irreverent way or a careless way toward God, there are consequences. That's true in the New Testament era of grace. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, holy. You're, you're high, you're lifted up, you're exalted. You're unlike anyone or anything else. You are separate. You're uniquely wonderful and awesome and powerful and, and majestic. And we err if we forget that. Or if a Christian willfully and in a premeditated way continues to sin, there can be discipline and sometimes that discipline is severe. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And, and what you have in these verses is a disciplining, not a, these people aren't going to hell, but they are experiencing a discipline that they might learn to reverence God because God cares about the way people view him and respond to him. This is an important word for the church because what happens is in our day, it's very easy for Christians to become soft on sin. And I'm not talking about sin out there in the world, I'm talking about sin in your life. And to somehow think it doesn't matter or to somehow think it's okay or to somehow think it's not that big a deal. 
And this passage reminds us that it is a big deal. Acts chapter 5, verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry out you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. She followed Ananias in life. She follows him in death. And I want you to notice something here. They dropped dead in church. And they dropped dead giving an offering. You say, why? Because worship done in hypocrisy is dangerous. Worship, uh, listen, this is the wrong place to play games. This is the wrong place to try to impress people. This is the wrong place to attend just so you can build your business. Listen, you may build your business, but if that's what you're about, you're playing games with God, it, it won't go well with you. You say, well, John, this is, I mean, this is so harsh. I mean, doesn't it seem like an overreaction on God's part? I mean, isn't it kind of like using a shotgun to kill a mosquito? I mean, if people drop dead every time they lie, I mean, next Sunday, the place is half full. <laughs> you know, because honestly, now, seriously, we tend to view lying as wrong but as a lesser sin. So how is it that God strikes people down for lying? I mean, this is in the Old Testament. If it were in the Old Testament, we'd say, well, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, a lot of things happen just boom, on the spot. So this is the New Testament. What, what is happening here? And I would suggest to you a more relevant question is, why aren't people struck down for lying today? To answer that question, you have to understand the context, I believe, of the passage, because this passage is framed by some verses that give us the context of the church. Acts chapter four, verse 31, remember? And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. I mean, it was like they're in this place, whatever it is, whatever house, and it is like an earthquake is shaking the place. Why? Because God is there. God is so close. We're going to look at it in a moment. But like when he comes down on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain shakes. When God shows up, things move. When God shows up, his power, the closer he gets, the more visible the demonstration of his power is. 
place was shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 33 with great power. You know what that is? That's that word dunamis. It means mighty power, miraculous power, supernatural power. Put mega in front of it with mega supernatural power, with mega miraculous power, with mega mighty power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and mega grace. You say, what does that mean, mega grace? Well, the word charisma, the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So you got... You got the gifts of healing, working of miracles, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, all those are, are charismata. They're acts of charisma. So what you have is much grace. You've got charisma. You've got power. You've got gifts of God functioning. It was upon all of them. God was near them. And then you go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. Would you notice it starts out with one man healed at the temple, and now all of a sudden what's happening is the miracles are multiplying. There's more and more and more, and it's regularly. And I want to suggest to you that from Acts chapter 3 to the time you get to Acts chapter 5, you have, a, you have a span of time where God is working increasingly in power. And they're done by the hands of the people. And you get to verse 16, we read this, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I mean, this is unbelievable. Everybody's healed. Amazing. God's grace, his presence, his power were on display all over the place with such an unusual intensity. His presence was thick. You could feel it. You could see it. it it's not just business as usual. There were supernatural phenomenon. I mean, that would be like the place shaking, and we don't know all that happened, but... There were miracles, there were healings. Everyone was filled with the Spirit, which in itself, I mean, imagine if just in this auditorium or all our auditoriums, everybody's instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's an unusual thing. That's Azusa Street, that's, which was a, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world in 1906 in L.A., Listen, when God's glory and presence is increasingly revealed in more obvious ways, that means God is drawing close. It means he's close. And when his glory is close, sin is more instantly judged. That's how it works. The closer he gets, the more dangerous it is. In the words of one person, he is not some cosmic teddy bear. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's our friend, he's our brother, but he's, he's, he's our king and he's our Lord. He's both. And when God comes near, you see this with Moses. Moses says, God, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God says, if you see my face, it'll kill you. If I get that close to you, you, you can't survive it. You're, you're sinful. You can't survive it. 
Isaiah is caught up in the throne room and he sees Jesus in his, in his glory before he came to earth. And when he sees him, you know, his glory fills this temple and there's angels and they're singing back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is and is to come. Do you know what his response is? I'm damned. That's what woe means. I'm eternally ruined. What's he say? For I am a man with a dirty mouth and I dwell among people who have a dirty mouth. I believe Isaiah might have had a problem with profanity. Instantly, in that moment, God draws close. He's aware of his sinfulness. What's he gonna do? He cries out to God. Listen, when, when God comes close, you know, you go to Exodus chapter 19, we're gonna look at it here. God says, listen, I need you to get the people ready because I'm gonna come down on the mountain and it's gonna be the only time in the history of mankind that two million people simultaneously heard the audible voice of God. You say, well, I really love to have been there and seen that. Well, maybe not because the people went to Moses afterwards and they said, Please tell him, go back up on the mountain and tell him, don't ever do that again. <laughs> Scared the daylights out of us. We'll die if that happens again. They're like, no more, no how, don't want. But God said, I need you to consecrate yourselves. I need you to get rid of your idols. I need, to get, I need you to get rid of the things that have become too important to you, maybe more important than God. I need you to, I need you to clean up your act because I'm going to get close. And if you don't do it, it won't go well for you. Do you follow what I'm saying? Watch this in, in Exodus 19. Be sure they're ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as the people watch. Mark off a boundary around all the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch the boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of a fire. So now the mountain is blazing with fire. Black smoke is billowing up. There's lightning, there's thunder. The mountain shakes violently. And I mean, the people are all watching this. And then there's the blast of trumpets. The ram's horns grows louder and louder. Moses speaks and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord said, go back down. Warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they'll die. If they get too close and they're not ready, it won't go well for them. That's the idea. The reason why judgment was so radical is because the power of God in their midst was so great. You say, okay, so all of that, thank you for the history lesson, the theology. Why don't we see people struck down in church today? Well, because typically God's glory isn't that close. So there's less of God moving, so there are fewer answered prayers, fewer people saved, Fewer people filled with the Spirit, fewer people healed, because God's glory isn't that close unless he decides to come visit a place. And then he gets close.
We are the recipients of a visitation of God. What you're seeing is something that has not happened in 30 years at James River. What you're seeing is something, I'm not saying it's the only place, I'm praying and believing and encouraged that there are other places. I know there are, I'm just saying this is, God has come close to the church in a unique way, in a way I've never seen. So that now, instead of every now and then hearing about a healing, as I told you, I can pull out my phone, I can give you a day-by-day account of the miracles from that day or miracles reported that day. God has come near. So that we have record numbers of people getting saved. God has come near. So that we have people getting filled with the Holy Spirit even on an online service night, God has come near. So that we have people getting healed even on an online service night, God has come. This is not normal. This is not business as usual. For whatever reason, and I think reasons that are beyond our ability to comprehend, God is visiting James River at every single campus in a very unique way. He's coming close. And when he comes close, sin is disciplined. That's why this is a warning. The issue really is where are you in your consecration? I mean, that's, that's really the upshot of this is where are you in your service of God? Where are you in your walk with God? What is happening in your life? How are you... And do you realize that when God comes close, that automatically brings some things into play like you have in Ananias and Sapphira that don't normally happen? You say, John, you're, you're scaring me. Well, that's pretty much what happened in the book of Acts. Look at it, Acts chapter five, verse five. Then when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear, that's mega, megas phobos, Megaphobia came upon all who heard it. Everybody was like terrified, the NLT says. The message says that put the fear of God into everyone who heard it. When God comes close, he's close. And when he's close, he judges sin, he disciplines people, and he cares about holiness. It's just, I don't serve you well if I don't tell you this. And I mean, honestly, scholars will say this is the hardest passage in the book of Acts to preach. For two weeks, I've, I've probably rewritten the sermon five times. But I, it is what it is. It's, it's a warning to a church that God has come down on and it's a calling to people to get serious. Listen, I, let, me, let me say this so you understand where I'm at. I'm not saying you're not. Some of you are very serious about the Lord. Some of you are kind of serious and some of you aren't serious at all. So the Holy Spirit is saying, listen, I want to visit the church. I am visiting the church. I've given you proof. I've given you evidence that I'm here. And there's more that's going to happen. But if 
you're going to experience what I want, you're going to have to be holy. And that's not a dirty word. That's a good thing. A lack of holiness can keep any of us from receiving from God what he would want to do. The idea of fear again in Acts 5.11, a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard the things. The NIV says great fear seized them, it gripped them. The NLP says it gripped them. The message puts it this way, by this time the whole church, and in fact everyone who heard of these things had a healthy respect for God. They knew God was not to be trifled with. That's it. Listen, we're in a place, and this is a good Sunday morning message. It's, it's not the message, hey, listen, I'd rather, I'd rather have you all shouting and happy and high-fiving and all that stuff. I mean, that's way more fun to preach. But this is more necessary. Because God is moving. He's moving in this place. And his glory is very, very close. I mean, I could sit there and read you the list of the testimony. I thought of doing it. But you know. You know. Let me leave you with. Just some things to think about. Number one, God is working in this place and he delights to draw close to people and do good. Listen, I'm not going to tell you, and I think sometimes it's a difficult thing because some of you have come from backgrounds where you we're constantly told God's got it out for you and he's out to get you and he's angry at you. And, and the answer to poor teaching is not more poor teaching that tells you you don't have to be, have any fear of God. Listen, Jesus said this, Luke chapter 12, verse four, I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after destroying the body, has the power to cast your soul into hell. Verse 5, yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus knew the Father well, and Jesus said, there's a place for healthy fear. Some people don't want to hear that, but I'm going to tell you, it's sound theology, and we understand it in life. Listen. I have a healthy fear of putting my hand on a gas burner that's on high. I have a healthy fear. I don't want to get burned. I don't want to lose my skin. It's a healthy fear. I'm afraid of doing that. I'm not going to do it. I have a healthy fear of taking and driving a car 100 miles an hour down a canyon road I've never been on in the dark. I have a healthy fear of that. I'm not going to do that. Some things, there's a place for a healthy fear. If you cut a healthy fear out of your Christian life, then what happens is people do not deal with sin in their life. They tolerate it instead of repenting and turning from it, and they experience less of God.
there are some here today, and I don't think there's a lot, but there are some here today, and here's what you're doing in your walk with God. You're saying, well, I'm just gonna do this now and then I'll repent some other time. What you don't understand in that statement is that repentance is a gift, not a guarantee. Repentance is initiated by the Holy Spirit in the heart of people to draw them to Christ. But you're not guaranteed he's gonna to continue to initiate that in your heart. If you willfully keep saying, I'm gonna do my own thing and then I'll repent later when, I've, when, when I feel like it or when I'm done living my wild life. Because, I mean, the Bible says, God said, my spirit will not always strive with men. There, there comes a point when God says, listen, I, I'm done calling you to repentance. And I would say this to you today. Some of you are convicted and God is working in your heart the gift of repentance and you should respond accordingly because it's a gift. Second, a lack of holiness in your life could keep you from seeing God work in your life. You know, honestly, we're gonna do this 10-day fast later in, in the month of March, and I'm really excited about it, but for me, I'm, I'm thinking, I believe God's gonna work. I wanna get ready long before the 10-day fast. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what do I need to do to draw close to God? You know, there's something about consecrating ourselves. Joshua said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do good things. There's something about laying aside, letting go, getting rid of the things that, that entangle us, that encumber us. In the words of Hebrews, the sin that so easily besets. Some of you have sin that besets you. It, it's constantly a challenge for you. You need to get rid of it. And do you realize that without holiness, you're not gonna see God. Some people live with less of God than they would have, and it comes down to one thing, it's a lack of holiness on their part. And I'm not advocating legalism, I'm just ad advocating consecration and a love for God that says, I wanna, I wanna walk as close to him as I can, and I don't, want to get any, I don't want anything to get in the way, that's what I'm talking about. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort, every effort, to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And number three, it, it's a dangerous thing spiritually to live a double life. Let, let me just tell you, you could fool me all day long. I'm not that hard to fool. Honestly, I give everybody spiritually, I give people a big benefit of the doubt. I, I think through the years, I've noticed my common view is to give people more spiritual credibility than maybe I come to find out later they deserved. I just believe people want to love God because I want to love God. You know what I'm saying? You just kind of like, hey, why would you not want to? And I know there's people that don't, but people in the church is what I'm talking about. You could fool me. I would not be hard. You maybe can fool everybody around you. You may be able to fool your family. You may be able to fool your friends. But you can't fool God. He knows. And that means some of you need to repent of your sin. You just do. You just need to say, I'm done 
with this.